1: Good evening, everyone. I am Jonathan Capehart in tonight for Joy Reid, and we begin the readout tonight with breaking news on the January 6th investigation. The select committee has dropped a new batch of six subpoenas, and the names read like a who's who of Trump's closest aides and allies. They include Bill Stepien, Trump's former 2020 campaign manager, John Eastman, notorious author of the blueprint to steal the election, Jason Miller, Trump campaign spokesperson, Michael Flynn, Trump's disgraced former national security advisor and QAnon devotee. And most surprising, Bernard Carrick, the convicted felon and disgraced former New York City police commissioner and close ally to Rudy Giuliani. At least three of them, Eastman, Miller and Carrick, participated in those war room meetings at the Willard Hotel ahead of the January 6th insurrection. The subpoena letters make clear why each of these individuals is of interest to the committee. Bill Stepien oversaw a campaign that reportedly urged state and party officials to affect the outcome of the election by asking states to delay or deny certification of electoral votes. Michael Flynn reportedly attended a December meeting in the Oval Office where participants discussed seizing voting machines, declaring a national emergency, and invoking national security powers. It was a drastic course of action that Flynn also pushed publicly.
2: The president has, a, has a, a, and I just mentioned one of the options. I mean, he could immediately, on his order, seize every single one of these machines around the country on his order. He could also order, he could order the, the um, in, within the swimming states If he wanted to, he could take military capabilities and he could place them in those states and basically rerun an election in each of those states. I mean, it's not unprecedented.
1: But of all of them, Eastman's subpoena contains the lengthiest rap sheet covering his memo to overturn the election, his appeals to state legislators to reject the outcome in their respective states and his 11th hour emails to Mike Pence during and after the insurrection. Today's development brings the total number of witnesses under subpoena to 24. However, it's unclear whether these latest targets will comply. NBC News has reached out for comment and is still awaiting word back. You'll recall last month, the House voted to hold former Trump adviser Steve Bannon in contempt of Congress for defying the committee's subpoena. With me now, Maya Wiley, former assistant U.S. attorney and MSNBC legal analyst, Stuart Stevens, senior advisor for the Lincoln Project, and Glenn Kirschner, former federal prosecutor. Thank you all very much for coming to the readout. All right, let's talk about these subpoenas and the significance of these subpoenas. Maya, I will start with you. When you saw the list of names of these folks who were subpoenaed, what kind of signals, signals, or messages did you get from that from that list? Well,
3: thank you, Jonathan. I think the signals are very clear, which is to say there's a lot of activity that the committee knows of that involved these central advisors Donald Trump, who were very publicly arguing, essentially, that the president had powers the president didn't have, as you just played with Michael Flynn, uh, advocating, frankly, martial law and a military coup, as far as I could tell. Uh, and also Eastman, you know, Eastman, who on January 2nd, was on Steve Bannon's show actually explaining how uh, Mike Pence stealed steal the election from Trump, having tremendous impact, frankly, on the QAnon, which got very active as a result of what they were all saying. So what you're seeing is the committee getting closer and closer and closer to what the president knew, who was talking to him, saying what and what he was saying. I think you are absolutely right, though. They're going to have to fight for that testimony. I expect that we're going to see a lot more votes and resolutions on contempt uh, and a lot more requests of the U.S. attorney for proceeding.
1: And, you know, Glenn, on that point, what I also found interesting, uh, not only about, you know, who was on that list, but when they are expected to appear for depositions. And I wrote out on on the calendar, Angela McCollum is due on November 30th. Carrick, December 3rd, Flynn, December 6th, Eastman, December 8th, Miller, December 10th, Bill Stepien, December 13th. It, it, and there's no indicator that they're actually going to comply with these subpoenas. Are we looking at a situation where the committee on a rolling basis is going to be voting on and sending to the floor of the House contempt, uh, contempt citations or resolutions against all of these people? Jonathan, at a
2: minimum, if these men and women uh, defy congressional subpoenas, let's hope that Congress votes them in contempt and refers them to pro- for prosecution, where the law says the appropriate U.S. attorney, that would be the D.C. U.S. attorney, shall present the matter to the grand jury for its action. Here we are on day, I believe, 18 of the Bannon Indictment Watch, We've heard nothing. We don't know if they have already presented the matter to the grand jury. They're awaiting the grand jury's decision. But uh, I would urge even beyond referring these witnesses for criminal contempt in the event they defy subpoenas, I hope Congress will also consider using its lawful tool of inherent contempt. Representative Jerry Conley was on TV today earlier on MSNBC saying, It's time. We're a co-equal branch of government. And his words were, it is a torturously long process when we have to rely on other branches of government to enforce our subpoenas. That would be both the Department of Justice and Mm -hmm. the legislative branch of government, excuse me, the judiciary. And he said, it's time. We're a co-equal branch. We have the lawful power of contempt. We haven't used it in 100 years. We have to dust it off a little bit. But I'm hoping that Congress will use all of the tools in its toolbox, not just some of them.
1: Mm -hmm. And, you know, to to uh, Glenn's point, Stuart, I mean, Congress did hold Steve Bannon in contempt of Congress. And to the point of what Glenn was talking about in terms of the congressman, we're now waiting for the Department of Justice, justice to say what it's going to do about that, that contempt um, citation from from Congress. How important is it to your mind that the DOJ do something, um, um, activate that contempt charge, go after Steve Bannon?
4: Well, look, I think you could stay up really late at night trying to think of something more serious than overthrowing the United States government and stopping the peaceful transition of power. I mean, that's the most sacred element of a democracy. Somebody has to be willing to lose in a democracy. And what Republicans have decided is they're for democracy when they win and they're not for democracy when they lose, which means they're not for democracy. Mm-hmm. You know, this is an interesting group. And, uh, you know, you've got a couple of former felons, a pardon felons, a deadbeat dad and Jason Miller. Um, the person, if I was in that I would focus on, who I think is the most normal and would feel some genuine patriotic duty to do the right thing is Bill Stepien mean, I work hmm. with him in Chris Christie's campaigns. Um, you know, if you read these books about the Trump campaign, he's sort of an odd man out in that he's sort of the most normal who's just trying to do a job as sort of a Republican operative would do. And I listen, I'm continually disappointed in Republicans. Um, so this just may be next on the list. But I, I would hope that Bill would go out there and, and tell what he knows and, and do mm-hmm. the right thing and not be forced to be dragged kicking and screaming in front of this committee.
1: Mm -hmm. Glenn, let me play for you. Um, Angela McCollum had a very interesting um, phone call. This was um, a voicemail that she left for a Michigan state representative. Have a listen.
3: You do have the power to reclaim your authority and send us a slate of electors that will support President Trump and Vice President Pence. We want to know when there's a resolution in the House to appoint electors for Trump if the president can count on
1: you to join and support. And so Glenn, as a former prosecutor, um, having evidence like that is solid, isn't it? You know, this
2: has the feel of a criminal conspiracy. You know, all six of these witnesses who have been subpoenaed were sort of part and parcel of the big lie. They all seem to have their individual roles, roles in the attempt to overthrow our democracy. Um, And, and, What I'm really interested to see is we may finally begin to see some witnesses invoke their Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination because, Jonathan, that phone call you just played, you know, I think any defense attorney worth their salt would recommend to that witness declining to testify by invoking your Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. When you see the letters that Representative Thompson issued that accompanied these subpoenas, which prosecutors can't do. Even the fact of us delivering a subpoena to somebody enjoys grand jury secrecy protection. But the Congress is not, not bound by those rules. So Representative Thompson was calling it like it is and laying out the dramatic and deeply damaging information that he expects to get out of these witnesses. I have a feeling you're going to start to see some witnesses pleading the Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination.
1: M- Maya, what do you think of that? Do you agree with Glenn?
3: You know, I don't think we know what's going to happen with any of these witnesses. I think we have to go back to whether or not there's going to be real hard important of the Congress first place. Uh, so I absolutely agree. We need to see that. And if anything, we should see that soon. But remember, there's also a Georgia grand jury that may be handled yes. on a- Um, And that's really important because all of the facts that we're hearing, that we're seeing from these potential witnesses who've been subpoenaed, also go to Georgia. And that is important to remember that there are other avenues and mechanisms, uh, which will be very difficult for some of these witnesses to avoid if there's a grand jury out there.
1: And I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to I was going to ask you about the about the Georgia case and about the possibility of this grand jury um, that looms in the Trump inquiry. And you see it there an Atlanta. District attorney is moving forward, convening a special grand jury in her criminal investigation of election interference by the former president and his allies. Um, And this one note, though, the grand jury can be used to subpoena evidence, but not And I want to put up one other thing. This is from the Brookings Institute analysis of Trump's conduct in Georgia. The Brookings Institute writes, and this is a 114 page analysis from the Brookings Institute. Trump's post-election conduct in Georgia leaves him at substantial risk of possible state charges predicated on multiple crimes. Those crimes include solicitation to commit election fraud, conspiracy to commit election fraud, interference with election duties, and last but not least, racketeering. And, you know, Stuart, um, you know, this sounds very bold and um, very damaging to the former president. But for some, why do I feel like for some reason, because Donald Trump is the former president, that these sorts of charges will never really land at his feet?
4: Well, look, we're in uncharted water. Uh, very few presidents of the United States have attempted not to, um, to leave office after they were defeated. So we really don't know what's going to happen. But I think there's an argument to be made that Donald Trump is like a guy walking around with a paper bag full of water. It's not going to leak, But when it goes, it's going to go and it's going to go fast. Yeah. You know, all those things that you just put up there about interfering with election officials and fraud. This is all the stuff that working are any kind of big time campaign The first day, some lawyer sits you down and says, don't do this stuff. This is bad. (laughs) You know, you can't (laughs) mess around with election officials. And the idea that there were just people all over the United States government and the Republican Party that were doing this as if there would be no penalty, which is why it's so important to hold these people accountable. Otherwise, this was just a practice.
1: Right, right. And there's that that saying that's been said many times on air, what's a failed coup? practice. Stuart Stevens, Maya Wiley, Glenn Kirschner, thank you very much for coming to The Readout. Up next on The Readout, infrastructure Reek was a running joke in the previous administration, but under President Biden, it's finally here. I'm joined next by White House Principal Deputy Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre and the Chair of the Congressional Black Caucus, Congressman Joyce Beatty. Also gripping testimony in court today from the lone survivor of the Kyle Rittenhouse shootings in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Plus, the fight to save democracy. Joining me, radio legend Joe Madison, who's on a hunger strike until Congress passes voting rights legislation. And tonight's absolute worst is brought to you by the letter M for misinformation. The readout continues after this.
5: and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future.
1: Infrastructure Week is finally here. After months of wrangling, congressional Democrats handed President Biden and you, the American people, a big win. And the blitz is on to promote the $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill, which is awaiting President Biden's signature. Today, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg said it couldn't come at a more urgent time.
6: Infrastructure is so elemental to our society that when it's not there to serve us in the right way, all of us are impacted. But when it is, when it's strong, every community, large and small, rural and urban, privileged and marginalized, every community feels the benefits.
1: And make no mistake, it's a big deal. President Biden set out to combine an Eisenhower, LBJ, Obama investment in society. And this bill that passed the House Friday night, the bipartisan infrastructure deal, is the Eisenhower part. It includes $550 billion in new spending. It's the most massive investment in roads and bridges since Ike. It's the largest investment in public transit in history. And the largest investment in passenger rail since Amtrak was created. It also expands clean energy and rebuilds our electric grid and puts billions toward rebuilding water systems in places like Jackson, Mississippi, and eliminating lead pipes in places like Flint, Michigan. It does a lot, but not everything. There's still the outstanding issue of the second big part of the infrastructure big deal, the Build Back Better plan. It was no easy feat getting the bipartisan infrastructure bill passed. It was only after the Congressional Black Caucus negotiated a crucial last minute plan to pass this bill immediately and set up a later vote for the Build Back Better plan, which got all but six Democrats to vote for the bipartisan plan or the bipartisan bill, which will soon become law. But that vote is expected the week of November 15th. But the question remains Are there enough votes to pass it in the House and the Senate? With me now is White House Principal Deputy Press Secretary, Karine Jean-Pierre. Karine, great to see you. Welcome back to The Readout.
7: Thanks, Jonathan. Good to see you. And you're right, it's finally Infrastructure Week, and we're really excited about that here.
1: And so it took a, a last minute wrangling by the CBC, but the bipartisan infrastructure bill got over the finish line. Let me give you a couple minutes to, to crow about it. Just a couple before I give you the really hard questions. <laughs> crow.
7: Okay. well, like like I said, it's finally infrastructure week and we couldn't be more uh, excited uh, to deliver for the American people, as you can imagine. But one thing that I do want to say is uh, for those at home who feel like they've been left behind or who feel like they've been forgotten uh, because the economy is moving so rapidly. Well, this bill is for you. This bill is for you. It is going to create union jobs, good paying jobs. And a lot of those jobs, you do not need a college uh, degree to have uh, those jobs. And another Mm -hmm. thing about this, too, it's it's, we're talking about red states, blue states, uh, tribal communities. This bill is for folks who have felt who again, who have felt forgotten, have felt left behind and this is what the president has been working towards. For over a year he has talked about having an economy where no one is left behind and there's also equity at the center of all of these bills that we're talking about, the the bipartisan infrastructure bill and also the Build Back Better Act. And that is something that the president has been committed to uh, from the beginning. Mm -hmm. So this is incredibly exciting. We're going to deliver for the American uh, for the American people, especially on this infrastructure and also bipartisanship. Let's not forget that word, something that the president was elected to do, reach out to the other side and bring people together. And two other things that I really want to lay out for folks, which is, I think, for your viewers, which were really appreciate this and understand this is that it's going to take out lead out of the drinking water so our kids can have clean drinking water that is so critical and that's across the country and another thing too that's so important is you you we hear these stories of parents having to go to uh, a fast food restaurant the parking lot of a fast food restaurant Mm -hmm. to get internet for their kids to do homework now we're going to have affordable internet uh, so that across the country again Kids could be able to have uh, internet to do their homework in a way, so they don't have to, you know, be sitting in their parent's car uh, in, order, in order to have that so, access. So these things are incredibly important. Uh, on, on top of modernizing uh, our roads and bridges and that hard infrastructure that we were talk- that we've been talking about.
1: Okay, and so that's the bipartisan infrastructure plan. Now comes the really hard part, and that is getting the Build Back Better Act uh, negotiated. Between House and Senate, Democrats getting it over the line. Let me read you a tweet today from Congresswoman Cory Bush of Missouri. And she she tweeted the Build Back Better Act is a racial justice bill. Community violence prevention, affordable housing expansion, supporting child care and elder care workers, policies that are crafted to support black and brown folks. We need to get it across the finish line. Um. Yeah. And yet we've spent months talking about two particular senators, Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin, who have spent a lot of time stripping out a lot of these provisions, provisions from the Build Back Better plan or shrinking the, the, the amount of money that they're willing to spend so that these, that those, those things, some of those things get squeezed out. Is the president confident? Is the administration confident that the Build Back Better Act will indeed have the hum- enough of the human infrastructure in that plan, in that bill, that will make a, a difference in the lives, as pointed out by um, Congresswoman Bush.
7: So that Build Back Better Act uh, that you're speaking of, to your point, this is pro-people. This is about humans, right? This is about pro-families actually doing that once-in-generational investment that we haven't done in a long time that's going to give people a little bit of that breathing room that the president talks about all the time because he understands what that all means. So I, I want to be very clear here. You know, they said to us, oh, we're not going to get the American Rescue Plan done. We got it done. They said we weren't going to get the bipartisan uh, infrastructure deal done. The president got that done. So he is committed to making sure that this Build Back Better Act happens. Like, Let's remember, this is something that the president has been talking about for over a year. This is his plan. This is something that he understands. Again, we'll give the American people a breathing room, give, deal them back in, as he says many times, to make sure we don't leave anybody behind and truly, truly invest in, in the American public. And so he's gonna, you know, dial, dial those dial dial that phone, call up uh, congressional members like he did on Friday, like he's been doing for the past couple of weeks and make sure this gets done working with members of the House, working with uh, Leader Schumer and senators on that side of the chamber and making sure that we deliver for the American people, because this is what is going to change transformational change that is so critical here. And those two bills, as we've talked about, is also going to help us fight climate climate change in a way that has never been done before. We talk about resilience, right? Making sure that those hurricanes, those wildfires, all of those extreme temperatures that we see in different regions of this country, actually that we build our resilience. So there's so many uh, important things that we're going to deal with, with these two pieces of legislation that we're going, we got one done and we're going to get the other one done as well.
1: Kareem, yes, you got you got one done, and it's sitting on the president's desk. Congress isn't in session this week, so no bill signing. The president's going to go to Baltimore um, to pro- to promote uh, the bipartisan infrastructure uh, bill. My question: When will the bill signing be?
7: Soon, the president spoke about this on Saturday and he said that he wanted to make sure, as you know, Congress is out. I think you just said that uh, he wanted to make sure everyone who works so hard uh, to make this happen are able to be at the bill signing. And once that happens, we will let folks know uh, and we'll we'll you know, we'll have an event here and we'll make sure that everyone is here who, like I said, work day and night uh, right. to make sure that we deliver it for the American public.
1: All right. White House Principal Deputy White House Press Secretary, Corinne Jean-Pierre. Thank you Thanks, very John. much for coming back to The Readout. Joining me now is Congresswoman Joyce Beatty of Ohio, Co- chairwoman of the Congressional Black Caucus. Uh, Chair Beatty, I feel like I just saw you. <laughs> I saw you yesterday morning. I, I think I did just see you. Y- yes, yesterday morning on the Sunday show. So the Congressional Black Caucus, the CBC out of nowhere comes through with the breakthrough uh, maneuver that got the bipartisan infrastructure bill to the floor um, for a, a full vote of the House of Representatives. Are you going to do the same thing to get the Build Back Better Act across the finish line?
8: Well, we're going to be a major player in doing that. We crafted much of the legislation that's in it. We're really excited about it. Our entire caucus wants to make sure that we pass the bill back better. It is a human infrastructure bill. It's a jobs bill. It's a civil rights. It's a justice bill. And we're all on the same page with that, with the Congressional Black Caucus. So this should be very exciting. When you think of any one of these transformational pieces of legislation, if I told you that we were putting 400 Billion dollars into child care. You would be just excited. The child tax credit. When we think about 35 million families will be affected. We're experiencing so much with climate change. Five hundred and fifty five billion dollars for that not to mention what we're doing for taking the lead out of water. We know what we've experienced here in the Midwest with Flint, Michigan, and so many of our Black Americans going to HBCU universities and Pell Grants. So there's a lot in there that will make a difference. We know that we're still fighting this COVID-19 with so many people who have lost their jobs. This is also a jobs bill. It's a justice bill. So we're really excited about it. And we're going to be on board. Uh, We crafted much of the legislation housing 150 billion dollars for housing. We have our chairwoman and my chair of the Financial Services Committee. Congresswoman Maxine Waters has been at the table. All six of our Congressional Black Caucus chair uh, chairmen and chairwomen have been at the table, along with our leadership.
1: You know, and I'm thinking about the vote on the bipartisan infrastructure um, bill. There were six no votes. Four of the six no votes are members of the congressional of the Congressional Black Caucus. It, do you think that is there uh, rift is too strong a word, but um, do you think that those members, the CBC can work with and talk to Senators Joe Manchin and, and Sinema and talk to them in ways that get them to support all of the things that are in the Human Infrastructure Bill, in the Build Back Better Act.
8: Well, we're working uh, on that as a caucus and with our leadership. And those four members who belong to the Congressional Black Caucus are strong members. We knew where they stood. We have a big tent. And that's the good thing about the Congressional Black Caucus. I believe that also made us a force because we are moderates. We are progressives. We are a new dem. So we have everything wrapped up in our 58 members. And so... We're a family. And just like most families, you don't always Mm -hmm. agree, but you don't have to be disagreeable. Those are my colleagues and my friends. Uh, I spoke with all of them. They have stood with us at our press conferences when we were talking about both bills. So there is no divide there with those members who voted their principal, their districts Mm -hmm. and what they wanted to do.
1: Right. As you say, the CBC is moderates, progressives. But the the deal that you came up with that got the bipartisan infrastructure bill over the line demonstrates once again that the CBC is pragmatic and about getting stuff done. Yes. Congressman Joyce Beatty, thank you very much for coming to The Readout. Coming up, the lone survivor of Kyle Rittenhouse's hail of bullets took the stand in Wisconsin today and recounted the harrowing moments when the wannabe militiamen turned the gun on him. That's next.
0: Hey everyone, it's Chris Hayes. This week on my podcast, Why Is This Happening? We're back with another installment of our special series with Pod 2024, The Stakes. I'm talking to experts about both Joe Biden and Donald Trump's records on specific policy areas during their time as president. This week, a biggie. AbortionEveryday.com founder Jess Valenti, on the stakes of reproductive
7: rights. Conservatives, Republicans would like us to believe that this is something that voters are sort of super polarized on, that we're evenly split down the middle. And that's just not true. Voters want abortion to be legal, even in red states, even in purple states. That's why we're seeing attacks on democracy.
0: That's this week on Why Is This Happening. Search for Why Is This Happening wherever you're listening right now and follow.
1: Today is day six in the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse, the Illinois teen who killed two people and wounded a third during protests after the death of Jacob Blake in Kenosha, Wisconsin, last year. Jurors heard from the lone survivor, Gage Grosskrutz, who was who was training to become an EMT and was providing care to anyone who needed it. That deadly night in Kenosha, Grosskrutz came across Rittenhouse after he had shot and killed Joseph Rosenbaum and was about to kill Anthony Huber. Grosskrutz acknowledged that he was armed with a pistol, but says his hands were raised when he was shot by Rittenhouse.
9: I
4: thought that the defendant was uh, an active shooter. And like I had mentioned earlier, anytime you add a firearm to the equation, it, like I said, the, the stakes are so much higher um, for somebody potentially being seriously injured um, or being being killed.
0: What was going through your mind at this particular moment?
4: That I was going to die?
1: He then testified that after Rittenhouse killed Huber, he trained his weapon on the witness and reloaded, not accepting his gesture of surrender. Grosskrutz then thought to disarm the shooter.
4: I was never trying to kill the defendant. That was never, never something that I was trying to do. In that moment, I was trying to preserve my own life. But doing so while also taking the life of another is not something that I'm capable or comfortable in doing.
1: Grossgrutz was ultimately shot, describing to the court that Rittenhouse vaporized his arm, his word, tearing away much of the bicep. Jurors looked away as the state showed the moment Rittenhouse shot Grosskreutz. At one point, according to pool notes, a juror nodded in agreement as the judge instructed the jury to disregard Grosskreutz's description of the shooting of a protester as "quote murder." Joining me now is Paul Butler, former federal prosecutor and Georgetown law professor. Paul, great to see you. Would love to get your your reaction to Grosskreutz's testimony because I always thought that you know. Folks like the good guy with the gun, but also this judge and and his actions in this case.
9: Jonathan, the prosecution has a tough case proving attempted murder because Mr. Grosskreutz himself was armed. He testified that he was afraid that Mr. Rittenhouse was going to kill him. On cross-examination, the defense got this witness to admit that it wasn't until he was pointing his gun at Rittenhouse, that Rittenhouse fired. So that could bolster Hmm. Rittenhouse's claim that he shot in self-defense because he believed that he faced a deadly threat. Wait, but
1: Paul, I mean, we just heard uh, Grosskreutz's testimony where he said he thought it was an active shooter. So does that not, I mean, at a minimum, cancel out um, that little thing that the defense got him to say on the stand?
9: Well, in fact, he was right. Kyle Rittenhouse was an active shooter and he already killed two people. But well, what citizens are supposed to do in that situation is to call the police to alert authorities. This witness testified he put his hands in the air. But when he saw Mr. Rittenhouse rewrack his rifle, he was afraid for his life. The videotape is the star witness in this case. So case of the jurors will look at the videotape. They'll hear this testimony and then they'll decide whether they believe this witness or whether they believe Mr. Rittenhouse.
1: Now, in, in the in my intro to you, I said that um, the judge instructed the jury to ignore, disregard Kretz's description of the shooting of a protester as, quote, murder. Is that because murder is actually a legal, there's a legal definition of murder?
9: That's exactly right. So it's the jury who will decide whether Mr. Rittenhouse is a murderer based on the fact that he killed the first two victims in this case. This judge likes the lime bike and he's micromanaging this case. This is the same judge who did not allow the victims in this case to be described as victims, even though Mr. Rittenhouse killed two of them. And the witness who testified today had graphic testimony about how he blew, Mr. Rittenhouse blew the bicep off of this man's arm when he shot him.
1: Um, let's talk more about uh, more about this judge, because, you know, I've been I'm following loosely uh, this trial. But everything I hear about this judge just sort of has planted the seed in my head that this trial is sorry to use the word rigged that the, the the instructions of the the judge is making it pretty much impossible for the jury to actually consider all the facts and come up with a um, a verdict where justice will be served or am i way out there in what i just said
9: not at all jonathan i understand your concerns remember this judge also ruled that the Victims could be referred to as looters, arsonists, and rioters. If there's evidence that is presented that they did those things, so far no evidence at all. Mr. Grosskreutz was a trained EMT officer right. there to offer medical aid. Right now, his first victim wasn't a protester. He was a man who would just been released from a psychiatric hospital who seemed to be having a mental health crisis. And so, when the judge allows these victims to be described as criminals, that certainly calls into question his judgment, if not his bias.
1: Paul Butler, thank you very much for coming back to the readout. Still ahead, tonight's absolute worst. Now, up next, voting rights is as good as dead in the U.S. Senate, but legendary activist and radio host Joe Madison isn't giving up by embarking on a hunger strike to demand Congress take action. And he joins me next. Voting rights appears to be dead in the Senate, with Republicans filibustering both the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act in the past few weeks. But activists haven't given up, marching to the White House last week to demand that the Biden administration take action. And today, radio host and activist Joe Madison announced he's going on a hunger strike until Congress passes and the president signs one of those voting rights bills. As a political protest. I am beginning
10: a hunger strike today, just as food is necessary to sustain life the right to vote is necessary to sustain democracy. Mm.
1: Joining me now is Joe Madison, activist and host of Joe Madison: The Black Eagle on Sirius XM. Joe, my friend, it is great to see you. Why, to see you. Going going on a hunger strike um, is, uh, I would say, an extreme end of protest. Why is it so important to you? To go on a hunger strike, hunger strike, on on behalf of voting rights, because what
10: the Republicans are doing is extreme. I mean, and I think about, for example, the end of the first Reconstruction, the Compromise of, uh, I believe, eighteen seventy-seven, the Rutherford B. Hayes. Uh, what, what the first thing that they did to newly Freed Africans who had spent about seven years with uh, Reconstruction elected uh, many people to Congress from states like South Carolina and Mississippi. Was the first thing they did was they went after the vote. And to be quite candid, um, you know, I thought about uh, John Lewis, and one of the things that John Lewis said. Um, and it just struck with me, he said, you know, I urge you, I urge all of you to answer the highest calling of your heart and stand up for what you truly uh, believe. Um, look, let's just be quite candid. I think the Senate has three things it can do, and and that is, one, they can kill the filibuster. Mm-hmm. Uh, two, Uh, reconvene the Senate, the Congressional Black Caucus suggested and and urged uh, uh, Senator Schumer to reconvene, take another vote, and then Mm. pass the Freedom Act. I refuse to believe, and I'm not going to accept uh, the fact that uh, in this so-called second Jonathan Reconstruction we're going through, that they repeat what happened over 100 years ago you know, people say, well, what about you? What about your health? What about uh, all of that? It's not about me. I, look, I've got four children, five grandchildren, and a great-grandchild. Uh, I don't want them, to, 50 years from now, to have to go through what our forefathers uh, went through 100 years ago when they ended the first Reconstruction. Well, <laughs> this is serious. If you, take, if you don't protect, there's nothing more important than protecting the right to vote. And it is very hard to believe that out of 50 Republicans, that they can't find 10 people to stand on moral principle mm. and protect the right to vote. So I'm going to uh, continue this hunger strike. They've got three things they can do. Kill the filibuster, shoot a hole in it. They did it for the Supreme Court justices and other and, and, Joe, and, and the budget, so mm-hmm. that's why.
1: And, and Joe, on that point of the filibuster, um, one of the reasons why it's not going anywhere is because, you know, folks like Senator Manchin and Senator Cinema don't want to reform or kill the filibuster to in order for it to pass. If you have a chance to speak with Senators Manchin uh, and or Cinema or some of the other Democratic senators who are hiding behind them, what would you tell them about the importance of, at a minimum, reforming the filibuster to get the voting right, either one of these voting rights bills passed?
10: Jonathan, I would tell him straight to his face that he ought to decide, does he want to go down in history to be on the side of Dixiecrats, of, 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 uh, of these individuals, who actually uh, almost destroyed the political advancement of African Americans and, and others in this country. Uh, I, I mean, I am, you know, I have never seen so much fear in the, in, in the hearts and minds of, of people who mm-hmm. are so afraid that you've got, Jonathan, 400, 400 uh, bills that have been introduced in 49 states to repress our right to vote. And right. My it, God, do you really want 50 years from now to be written down in history and be alongside uh, the, the the Southern uh, uh, the the public, I mean, Democrats at that time. Yeah. No,
1: Joe. And so I'm. I mean, we have to fight it. We just have to right. fight. And Joe, we we are going to we're going to keep tabs on you. Um, and we're, we're, we're praying for you because a, a hunger strike is serious business, uh, just as voting rights are serious business. So keep, and, and keep John, us posted. And you know and, me.
10: And you know me. I'm
1: serious. Oh, no, I, I know you're serious. Joe Madison, we got to go. Thank you very, very much uh, for coming to the readout. Good luck, Thank you. Joe. If you thought the right wing culture, cultural panic couldn't go further than outrage over Teletubbies or Mr. Potato Head, you thought wrong. Tonight's Absolute Worst is next. Hello, boys and girls. Today's letter of the day is F for freak out. And it's brought to you by all those out of breath right wingers who've found the object of their latest temper tantrum everyone's favorite feathery resident of Sesame Street, Big Bird. You see, Big Bird sent out a tweet supporting the recent efforts to get five to 11-year-olds vaccinated. How dare Big Bird share such scientific truths about the shot in order to keep him and his friends healthy? You have Ted Cancun Cruz calling it government propaganda for five-year-olds. Newsmax host and former Trump flunky Steve Cortez calling it actual evil. Come on, y'all. You have others saying it's brainwashing our kids and even one joking that it'll lead to the death of the beloved Sesame Street character. (laughs) But don't you worry, kids. Big Bird and all his Sesame Street friends will be okay. They have long been targeted by the right, accused of indoctrinating all the boys and girls with such scary values as tolerance, kindness, inclusivity, And yes, staying healthy. Guess what? It's not even the first time Big Bird has promoted the benefits of vaccinations. There he is, back in 1972, getting in line for his measles vaccine. And speaking of values, kids, good sportsmanship is also an important value. Unlike what we saw with benched Green Bay Packers quarterback Aaron Rodgers, who lied to his teammates about being vaccinated. Football Hall of Famer Terry Bradshaw spelled it out for Rodgers over the weekend.
4: It would have been nice if he had just come to the Naval Academy and learned how to be honest.
1: Yeah.
6: Learn not to lie
2: because that's what you did, Aaron. You lied to everyone. Unfortunately, we've got players that
1: pretty much think only about themselves, and I'm extremely disappointed in the actions of Aaron (coughs) Rodgers. Kids, that's what we call a read. And here are some facts that even Big Bird would understand. The New York Times is reporting that the gap in COVID deaths, de- COVID's death toll between red and blue America has grown faster over the past month than at any previous point. The big difference, of course, is vaccination. So the lesson of the day is if you find yourself attacking Big Bird on getting vaccinated or really on any issue, you're probably on the wrong side. And in the case of those on the right already doing that, you're tonight's absolute worst. And that's tonight's readout. When news breaks,
6: go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. New developments in the legal drama surrounding former President Donald Trump. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts.
8: Lots of news of all
5: kinds going on right now.
6: And the latest updates on the 2024 election. The rematch is on. It's Trump-Biden part two. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com slash app.